Hey everyone, I'm super excited about this episode, but before we get to it, I have a quick favor to ask. I happened to look at the iTunes rating for the show the other day, and there's only two reviews from 2023, and they're both one star. Total bummer. I don't think that really reflects what most of you think of the show, and I haven't asked this for a while, but if you happen to have a minute, I'd love it if you could just pause this show and rate it on whatever podcast app you use. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. On to the show. professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Brent Denevi, a planetary geologist at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Gary. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. We are recording this on August 23rd, 2023. I have a weird drink that I found. It's called Moment, and it says, drink your meditation. It says it is still spiced mango botanical water, and it has like a lot of things about it. Like it says that this will help my alpha brain waves. But what's slightly concerning to me is that it also says, don't drink this if you're pregnant. And I'm like, if this is really good for you, why can't pregnant ladies drink it? But I'm going to try it anyways. What are you drinking? Oh, my gosh. I was very thrilled about the prospect of finding a very weird drink. Yay. But of course, I didn't, I didn't actually manage to do it. So I'm just going with my regular, which is a spindrift. I am kind of addicted to these, but it is... A flavor I haven't tried, so that's something. It is unsweetened pink lemonade. Ooh, yeah, that sounds nice. But I am like suspicious because is it a key part of lemonade that it's sweet? Is this just a, an acid drink? <laughs> also, pink isn't really a flavor, yeah. <laughs> but it does say uh, it has cherry puree, lime juice, lemon juice, and hibiscus for color. Okay. That sounds fun. I heard that the original pink lemonade was like a disgruntled clown put some pantyhose with poisonous red dye in it and everyone loved the pink. (laughs) So anyways, the hibiscus sounds much better. There's like a whole story about it. Um, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to try mine. Cheers. Cheers. It does actually taste like unsweetened lemonade-ish so (laughs) is it good or is it just kind of acidy it's good i i i I can't say a bad thing about spindrift i like them all apparently (laughs) well that's excellent mine is a little weird tasting there's like definitely the mango but there's also the spiced part how are your your brain waves feeling (laughs) i mean that's the real question I, i think maybe i'll have to check in later Okay, (laughs) we'll come back to this at the end. So now that we are drinking our assorted drinks, we get to talk about people going to the moon, which is very exciting. So the Artemis missions are currently being developed and planned right now. And the goal of the missions is to return humans to the moon to explore the South Pole. And as part of that, they will also bring the first woman and the first person of color to the moon. And it's kind of thought of as the first step to accomplish if NASA is eventually going to send people to Mars. And I just kind of wanted to start off with why the South Pole? Why go there as opposed to someplace else on the moon? 
the South Pole has resources that other areas of the moon do not. So a lot of what the, you know, the big talk about the South Pole in terms of resources is volatiles, hopefully water ice that is going to be cold trapped in these permanently shadowed regions, basically impact craters. So topographic lows that are always in shadow. So that is one of the key things, but that's not really one of the the first things that the crews will use in terms of resources. The first thing is really the light. So the opposite of the permanent shadow is there are a lot of, you know, any topographic highs, peaks, ridges, see a lot more sunlight than some of the equatorial regions where you have 14 Earth days of sunlight and then 14 Earth days of shadow, which, you know, makes things tough surviving that very long lunar night. So when you have this kind of unusual lighting situation at the poles, it it causes challenges, but it's also great for solar power and and longer durations of, of lighting for the crew to use. That's such an interesting point, because I'm kind of used to thinking of the poles as unhospitable, right? Because the North and the South Pole are so cold on Earth. But it seems like this is an easier place for humans, because you can get kind of constant light all the time, and you don't have this huge uh, change in temperature over a whole month as opposed to just a day. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call them hospitable. <laughs> the, entire, the entire mood is pretty inhospitable, but, you know, it's all relative. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. So the thought is, is that the South Pole, it might be an easier place to set up kind of a long-term human presence because of the water and also because you can have solar panels all the time. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the water is still a TBD on just how much is there, how accessible it is, how easy it is to mine it and actually use it. But that's one of the key things that these early missions will be looking at is you know, bringing back the first samples of some of these volatile materials to really assess what we can do with it. <laughs> Which brings us to the project you've been working on, which is something called JET5. And this is in preparation of that. Can you tell us about JET5? Yeah. And just as a late breaking update, uh, (laughs) yesterday, I found out that our Artemis 3 geology team proposal was selected. Hey, congratulations. I'm thrilled. I'm going to get to kind of lead this amazing team of scientists from across the country, across the world, actually, who will be helping to plan out some of the science that's done by that first Artemis three mission. Oh, that's so exciting. Um, yeah, yeah. So the timing <laughs> of this podcast is fun. Yeah, you hear it first I'm still on on space a, <laughs> I'm still kind of letting that news, news sink in. I was, I was preparing for crushing disappointment. <laughs> so this is way more fun. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so Jet 5 is kind of the um, precursor to uh, what we're going to do with Artemis 3. It's a year-long project for the scientists who get involved. Of course, it's been like a, a much longer project for everyone else involved. We're just kind of showing up at the, the fun test. <laughs> but it's a full field and mission control simulation of what uh, the Artemis 3 mission will be like. So we have a little science team huddled together in Houston, uh, figuring out what the 
crew should do in terms of accomplishing these science objectives we've come up with. And then the crew, the astronauts are in Arizona pretending to be on the moon and doing EVAs going from station to station at night with big floodlights to kind of simulate the weird South polar lighting. So it's kind of a big test to see like, what, what, how is this all going to work? How are all of these many moving pieces going to fit together? And then the part that I'm involved in is just like the little, little fun science part (laughs) that folds into all of that. So the long-term goal that you'd like to see for your particular involvement is that when the astronauts are on the moon, they do kind of a clean sample collection of the most scientifically interesting samples of rocks or water or other volatiles. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, that will be a, a huge part of the geology team's job is to make sure that the samples that are collected are going to be addressing the high priority science objectives that, you know, the lunar science community has had these, I would would say pent up questions for (laughs) decades that, you know, there's so many people like discovering new things from Apollo samples still, but getting new samples from a different portion of the moon to answer these questions that weren't even really thought of yet when Apollo astronauts were on the moon. That's kind of what we're focused on is making sure that the science community will have this kind of legacy sample set and data set to work with for hopefully, you know, for decades. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It does feel like a a huge responsibility. And I know that our, (laughs) our team takes that like like very much to heart as we've been thinking about this it's like this isn't about us at all this is about like making sure we do this right for everyone and our team is going to be helping with the preliminary investigations you know like summing up what was learned on the surface doing a preliminary investigation of the samples that are brought back but the goal isn't like our team is doing all the science the goal is to set up the entire science community for success. So that preliminary examination of samples will give people a catalog that they can use to request the very best materials for the investigations that they want to do. So yeah, it, it does feel like a lot of pressure, <laughs> um, but in, in a good way in that it's fun to work on things that are meaningful and important. So we're really thrilled about about doing that. <laughs> I'm sure that there's a, a very exhaustive, probably complicated flowchart about the types of samples you'd like to see. But I was wondering, could you give us maybe like a couple of examples of specific samples you'd love to get and why those are scientifically interesting? The South Polar region is some of the oldest ancient crust on the moon. So it is holding this record of geologic processes that, you know, inform our understanding of the Earth-Moon system, of terrestrial planets in general, of bombardment in the solar system, these records of things that our own planet is like a terrible job at at telling us about (laughs) because it's so 
it's got plate tectonics. It's got all the cool fun geology, but then that's erasing this ancient, ancient record to a large degree. So we're just so lucky to have this little partner in space out there keeping records for us of what was going on way, way back when, when the solar system was still kind of finding its current configuration, you know, the outer planets were migrating outwards, sending Kuiper belt objects, you know, streaming in to the inner solar system, delivering volatiles. And so the samples are like getting the ones that I'm most excited about are getting at that really early history. We're hopeful that we'll see a, a different population of rocks that recorded, well, that basically they recorded different history of impact events on the moon because a lot of the samples from Apollo you know, they're pretty concentrated on the near side and they were all pretty near to this one very big and very large impact basin, the Imbrium Basin. And so that basin, it's like, uh, like 3.9-ish billion years old. And that's when we think life was starting to emerge on Earth. And so if there was this huge, like, cataclysmic spike in giant impactors hitting the earth moon system at that point that is well it's just weird because the solar system should have sort of taken its shape more by then there shouldn't have been giant objects you know still banging into the earth and the moon and the inner solar system as much but we don't know for sure that that is what happened because the Apollo sample sites were in a pretty limited region. And so we may actually be kind of getting this overprint from like one big impact event and just kind of sampling that event over and over. And that's been a huge debate in uh, the lunar science community for, well, for, for decades. <laughs> um, so, so getting just away from all of that, going to the South Pole, you're not going to have this, you know, huge influence of some of those big near side basins. They'll hopefully have the influence of the South Pole Aiken Basin, one of the biggest and oldest impact basins in the solar system, and understanding when that formed, how it shaped the whole moon's evolution is one of the the biggest priorities for lunar science because it kind of will help us answer that question was there a big spike in impact events kind of late or was it a more gradual decline? And how did that affect the rest of the solar system of which, you know, the moon is our easiest and most accessible record. So that's one of the science questions that I get really excited about. Of course, another really key one is that sampling those volatiles, we, or at least I don't really fully understand yet the constraints that will be placed on sampling in permanently shadowed regions, which you can imagine, well, they're dark. (laughs) They are pretty cold, a lot of them, (laughs) because they're cold enough to preserve water ice for, for many, many years. So I think understanding the mission constraints on crew being able to sample in some of the key areas is going to be something that will be really important to understand as we're getting ready for this. But we do expect that we'll be able to get, you know, drive tubes of the upper meter or so, looking for some of those subsurface volatiles 
And while most people are really excited because, you know, we'll get to find out how much is there. Can we mine it? Will it be useful for rocket fuel someday? The science questions and what our team is mostly interested in is, you know, how did that water get there? Is it comet impacts? Is it the moon's volcanic outgassing that volatile water material preserved many billions of years later? And so understanding the origins of that water is the more interesting part to me, at least. The early history of the solar system is so interesting. Just for a little more context, planetary scientists have been able to kind of piece together a series of events. And this is by like inference, and there's like some debate around them. But one big event would be the formation of the moon happening when a Mars-sized object smashed into Earth, and then the moon formed. Rocks that you might get from the South Pole might have clues to that event. And then you were also talking about the beginning of the solar system, where a couple weird things happened that I don't think are... Our common knowledge, though people might remember this from previous SpacePod episodes, one is is that the planets didn't form in the order they are now. The outer planets switched spots a little bit. When they switched spots, they disrupted a bunch of asteroids and comets, and those kind of went everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, chaos. Yeah. And there's also this idea that maybe there was kind of chaos for a while, but then anything that was going to hit a planet did hit a planet. Now there's kind of a quiet time. And these are kind of all the big questions that these rocks from the South Pole will help us answer in a really kind of important way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is kind of a, a naive question. So I get the impression that if an astronaut was on the South Pole and they just picked up any five rocks, geologists would be pretty happy about that. Because <laughs> any any sort of new information is interesting. But it, but it would be kind of a waste for them to just pick up the first five rocks they see and you want to pick out specific rocks. On the one hand, you have some information about the surface from satellites that have orbited the moon and, and taken measurements of the surface. But how do you, how do you kind of train people to pick up the best rocks possible while keeping in mind that there might be rocks that you're not expecting around, if that makes any sense. Like, how does that whole process work? Well, first of all, I mean, yes, I think lunar scientists would be thrilled to just get any five rocks. (laughs) But I mean, in, in one sense, that is what lunar meteorites are, you know, Yeah. Random rocks that have been delivered to Earth and we get what we get and we learn a lot from from those rocks. But what is so exciting and crucial about these more in-detailed field geology explorations is that you're getting all of that context of the rocks and you can know, you know, how representative are your samples. You can start to build up a local stratigraphy. So there was the two parts. There's the, what do you get by being able to do that in-depth investigation? And then there's the, how do you train for that? We do have the benefit of so much knowledge that helps us plan these landed field work investigations. Um, We can see down to the boulders that are 50 centimeters to a meter across And we can put a little dot and say, you know, please, (laughs) that one looks good. We'd like that one. But it is also an area that hasn't been explored. And there are a ton of things we don't know, like how much material has been mixed in from other parts of the moon. You know, it's not a perfect, pristine kind of outcrop 
of rock that the crew is going to investigate. It's a big mixed up jumble of material that has been, you know, gardened, recycled (laughs) over and over for billions of years. So on the one hand, you know, we have a general idea of the composition, the types of rocks to expect. On the other, we are definitely looking for some of the outliers there. You know, do you see a really iron rich rock that is definitely not a local material? It's it's come from somewhere else. And so that will be the keep a lookout for these things. Let's go to the areas where they're most likely to have accumulated or material is most likely to have been excavated from great depths but there's only so much we can know from from orbit and so the crew is like they're going to be incredibly well trained even we're just in these some of the simulations just hearing hearing them describe we're we're in houston and there was you know our 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 simulation astronaut crew, they were just, you know, on the JSC campus in this like little rock yard, which is like, I don't know, some piles of rocks that somebody dumped there. (laughs) And just listening to them explain, you know, okay, I'm transitioning from, you know, this light toned unit where we're seeing some conglomerations, you know, they are incredibly skilled at explaining the geology of what they're seeing, even when it's kind of pretend geology. So they'll know they'll know what to look for. It's such a contrast to the Apollo missions, right? Where there was not the sort of resolution where you could be like, please get one of these boulders here. And if I'm remembering correctly, I believe there was only one astronaut that was a trained geologist that ever went to the moon. And he picked up some particularly interesting things, like some little orange glass spherules because he had that trained eye. And of course, all of the Apollo astronauts went through some sort of training, but it sounds like this level of training is like way more advanced than what people were doing in the 70s and 60s. On the one hand, maybe yes, but on the other, no. I mean, the Apollo crew went through a a ton of geologic training. You know, I've gotten to visit some of the, the field sites that they were trained at. And they really bought into the geology and the science that they were doing and they knew what to look for too. And the, the one thing about uh, the Apollo data is they actually did have some really high resolution images. Ah. There was a series of orbiters called lunar orbiters. There was like, I don't know, three, five, seven of them or something. But they were these spacecraft, they were designed as basically the pre Apollo reconnaissance. And so they took images that were almost equivalent to some of the highest resolution images we have now. And they did it in this like mind blowing way where they didn't have CCDs. So they had Polaroid strips. They would expose these Polaroid strips and then you know, develop them on the spacecraft, scan them, and then send those scans back. So the images look like these little kind of strips of repeating images, because that's like, literally, they were developed, you can see little Polaroid blemishes in some of them and stuff. So it's pretty spectacular what, (laughs) what they did have to work with. 
But of course, they didn't know what the moon was made of. They didn't know the basic things that we now take for granted because of all of the Apollo samples and all of that early work. So while they could pick out interesting landing sites to test some of their ideas, one of the coolest things is that some of those ideas were just totally wrong. Like when they thought they were going to look at these unusual volcanic planes and they turned out to all just be planes of of impact ejecta. So we can kind of pick and choose our questions with this more informed background knowledge, but it actually doesn't mean all the questions are entirely different. <laughs> I was looking at this 1965 list of you know science objectives for crude exploration of the moon. And it, I mean, we've answered some of them, but you know, some of them are still things we would like to know. <laughs> That's so fascinating. I had no idea that there were those high resolution images before landings. That's really cool. Previously, you said one of the geology team's objectives was to do these samples. What are your other roles? Gosh, <laughs> we will find out soon. I think. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, well, the proposal was a really interesting thing to put together because we were asked, here's a a candidate landing site, an example landing site. Here are some constraints, like here's a landing point and you can only go two kilometers from it and you will have this many hours to explore, like what would you do? And you can't bring back more than a hundred kilograms of samples. What's your plan for that? So it was like super fun to put that together. And I think that will be one of our things is, you know, making sure that we can come up with a list of the objectives. And we're not coming up with that list from scratch. It's based on priorities that have been set by the lunar community for decades, and then come up with the best plan within all of the various different mission constraints of how to sample, how to do other kinds of observations, you know, stereo imaging, digging trenches, you know, those boot print photographs aren't just for, you know, because they look cool. You're looking at how much the regolith compresses. And then once the samples are back, getting that kind of preliminary look at what was actually collected and making a catalog of that, coming up with some of the earliest assessments of, all right, what are the science outcomes of the mission? Hopefully we're handing over this beautiful curated data set to the community to dive into all of the hard work that will come after that. I guess circling back to the other thing that the pre-mission planning will do is helping with some of these mission simulations. What's the strategy for tracking your science priorities as you're going along? How will you deal with serendipitous discoveries along the way where you have this very tight planned out timeline, but suddenly there's this other thing that you want to look at? Working with the JET5 team, it's been so fun to see how the team at Johnson Space Center and just the broader NASA team is embracing that kind of discovery science because, you know, as they've been explaining to us, that is not typically how human exploration is working on the International Space Station. There, every handhold during an EVI is numbered and the instructions to the crew are down to, you know, the minute of in which handhold to grab and where to hook in and all of these things. 
So there's a new, how do you embrace this discovery where priorities are shifting and you don't know quite what you'll see there. So it, it's actually been really cool to see see that embraced. And the funny thing is, it's really fun to see the whole broader Artemis team embracing a science traceability matrix <laughs> as like an important tool because I think these are kind of the bane of, of our some of our <laughs> existence sometimes. You know, anytime you do a mission proposal, you have to write out your goals, your objectives, your measurements, your requirements, everything you need. But that is like, all right, like this is what we're going to do. Here are objectives. And even if how you accomplish them is a little bit more nebulous than, or a little bit more open-ended, I should say, it's really cool to see all of the engineers, the crew, everyone embracing this concept of a science traceability matrix. (laughs) That's very funny about the science traceability matrix, (laughs) because it's not the most glamorous thing, but it is very useful. There's a reason that it's like a a tool that is used. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's hard for us scientists to kind of put into such rigorous detail sometimes of exactly what is needed to answer this science question. But it's also really helpful to try to do that too. Yeah. So there's a lot of these practice runs that have been done and will be done. And you, you touched on this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about like, what are the lessons you learn from doing those? Like, are there any surprises that come up? You know, because on the face of it, it might seem very simple to listeners that, you know, you go out, you grab these rocks, you come back. But I know that it's super complicated. Yeah, I mean, there are like the big mission scale lessons learned. And then there are my own personal lessons learned, (laughs) which are like, uh, holy crap, time flies, like they're moving fast. And, and that's actually the whole point is that (laughs) the astronauts are smart, and they can get stuff done really quickly. (laughs) This is not a, you know, rover where you're sitting there waiting hours and hours for each observation. It's like things are moving and you got to keep up. But for Jet 5, we haven't actually performed the big full-up simulation yet. That'll happen in the beginning of October. So we've gone through our own little, you know, scientist boot camp of like, here are some of the things that you need to know. And Kelsey Young has been leading this at NASA, and she's doing this like phenomenal job of teaching us important lessons that are like, we put on the astronaut gloves in the glove box and they give us like a nut and a bolt and you have to try and like (laughs) you know just get this put together and it is really hard it's so hard it's hard to even just make a fist and hold something in your hand so asking the crew to hold a rock hammer for a very long period of time and do these things like i naively didn't really think about (laughs) they're working really hard and everything they do. And we got to go and talk with some of the people who are working on the the astronaut suits and just look inside them, see how they piece together, see how awkward they are and that they have to be in some ways. You know, your, your shoulder motion is so restricted. It's hard to bend down, kneel, get back up in those suits. And so thinking that through, how they're going to be moving, the things we're asking them to do 
for me, it was an eye-opener to see all of that. And then the other portion was just like, you know, so far in, in our little, the only test that I was involved in so far, and it wasn't even a test. It was just a like, you know, a simulation for us, like dopey scientists who didn't know what was going on yet. <laughs> it was like the rock yard test at, at JSC was, you know, they need decisions quickly. They're moving and there's the way they're communicated up. It's like, you know, if you're sitting there with your science team debating, like, well, do we really want to get a sample of, of this material or that material, you have to be ready to decide quickly because they're they're doing it and they're moving on. They're already past it if you, if you keep talking for too long. So that's going to be a challenge for scientists. Yes. <laughs> deliberative. Let's, let's think this through. <laughs> but that's what these tests are going to, to help us figure out. Just the level of detail we're going to need to think through all of this ahead of time to make it a success and to make it not just a success, but like wring every last ounce of science out of this precious time on the moon that we can. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really, really fun and a huge challenge. And it, it's like thrilling to be a part of this huge team where everyone involved is so excited, is so talented, is so smart, so good at their jobs. And seeing that kind of joy and excitement is it's wonderful. <laughs> It's a dream. (laughs) This kind of leads me to my next question, which is every day you you go to work, you're answering emails, you're having meetings. So like your day-to-day work, I'm kind of assuming is much like any other office worker. But since you are doing this like big, exciting thing about like exploring the moon, working with astronauts, do you feel that excitement every day? Or do some days you have to do like an HR training and you like forget? Like... How, how does that play out in your like day-to-day life going to the office? Well, Carrie, since this proposal was selected yesterday, <laughs> so far, every day is thrilling and exciting. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, like, so I've been working on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera team for like 13 plus years now in orbit. And there's still a thrill when you... Maybe after you drink your like calm Zen tea or whatever <laughs> your beverage is, you know, just you got to remember to savor the moment a bit. But there is still a thrill of looking at those images that are coming down every day. I think that's what so many of us love is that discovery, the excitement. And for me, it's like the moon is beautiful. The moon is like art. These images are so stunning and to get to help pick where we take them which ones you know be some of the first people to see those that that is really fun and then you know there are a lot of zoom meetings and and such too so like i'm not every day is not (laughs) you know brimming with joy (laughs) every moment is not a thrill there's a lot of the normal tedium of things that must get done but there's a lot of exciting parts. You're in kind of a unique position because you've worked with a robotic imager extensively, and now you're working with people that will be exploring the moon. And oftentimes, you know, it's kind of presented as a binary, like, should we have human exploration or robots? And I I think that's kind of a false binary, like, why not both? But I was wondering if you had any thoughts about, you know, the strengths of the two, given your kind of perspective in both worlds. I don't even feel like I can fully talk yet to how 
the strengths of the human exploration because I'm still just like marveling at what I am learning, getting to start working with these amazing people. I mean, just the strengths of how fast they work, how smart they are, how quickly they're going to be able to go through and pick out those. Yeah, it's really exciting. But yeah, I mean, of course, you're you're right. We need we need the robotic portion too. You know, LRO has been up there orbiting the moon, very steadfast for many many years, and we need those images. That data is what we are using now to plan out where people will go on the surface, and so we need both parts of that. The robotic part is good at the very long haul task of collecting data. I always think too, it's funny that it's like the robotic part, but it, it's still people. <laughs> we still have this incredible team of scientists that is what makes that robotic mission happen and is taking that data and putting it to use and getting the important bits out of it. What you're saying about the timescale of decision-making is so interesting because I feel like the planetary science community is very good and very practiced at working at robots, but part of that is like, let's take three hours <laughs> to decide what the robot does next or take three hours to decide how we'll program the robot to make its own choices or 10 hours or three weeks or 10 years. You know what I mean? Like we really have had, yeah. had the luxury of time. And that's interesting that that kind of goes away when you have people involved doing the actual exploring. Yeah, which is which is the point. Right. <laughs> They're going to get stuff done <laughs> really quickly. But yeah, it is going to be a, a new wave for us to work. You're not planning out observations six weeks in advance or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. How exciting. So thank you so much, Dr. Denevi, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about this upcoming lunar exploration, we get to hear a fun fact about Brett. One of the both like most fun and tedious things that I get to work on sometimes is naming impact craters. Yes! So <laughs> <laughs> the, the most fun place that we've done that is Mercury, because I worked on the messenger mission and half of Mercury hadn't been seen at all before that mission. So there was a lot of features to name, but I loved the idea of doing that because Craters on Mercury are named after artists, writers, and I got to name a whole bunch after dancers because I love ballet. There weren't any dancers or choreographers on there, so I got to like combine, I to combine the artsy ballet stuff with the craters. And when I when I talk to people, like that's what they get really excited about. Like, oh, you named a crater for Balanchine, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. The, the actual naming process and getting names approved by the IAU um, is, is long, it's slow, it's tedious, <laughs> but it, it's still really rewarding in the end. I'm on the IAU committee for naming minor planets, so oh, wow. it is like a nice <laughs> combo of, of tedium, <laughs> but it's also very exciting. Did you name any craters for people who are alive, or do they all have to be deceased? People have to... Um, have been deceased for at least three years. So I think it's to avoid, you know, glorifying your own best buddies and things. On Mercury, the rule for artists is that they have to have been notable as well, at least 50 years ago. 
Did you, so for, for example, for the dancers that you named the creators after, did you contact their families? Like, do people, like, do people know? <laughs> yeah, I, I did not. Although people definitely take note. I mean, it, it's a cool thing. There is a creator somewhere named for, for, for Balanchine, for example, I was contacted by a woman who, she was a, a dancer in New York City Ballet. She danced with George Balanchine, and she was writing a book about Balanchine. I had so much fun talking with her about this amazing book she was writing, and she got to work in, you know. So Balanchine Crater on Mercury has this, like, big asymmetrical ejected deposit, and um, it's kind of a bluish color. And I picked the name for that crater because um, one of Balanchine's most famous ballets is called Serenade and the costumes are these long blue tutus and that like ejected deposit looked like <laughs> the costume to me so as she was writing about it you know she got really excited about this idea and we got to talk about his mark on ballet dance history and how that is eternally preserved on Mercury and it's really fun to branch out beyond the little planetary science bubbles in those ways sometimes. Absolutely. And that's so cool that the crater itself, you know, has this meaning and reflects the actual artistry. I just want to add the the book that she was writing was all about Serenade and Balanchine's history told through this really important masterpiece work that he did. And so it was really cool to get to include this, the story of this crater in the book that Tony Bentley was writing. This is such a good fact. <laughs> I'm so glad you shared this. <laughs> the reason I asked about calling people is that sometimes when I've named an asteroid after someone, I've I've tried to tell their family, particularly if they're deceased. And so I've had to make these weird phone calls just where I kind of Google their names and I try to like find a phone number and then I try to like not sound like a total banana pants person where I try to lead in like with my title and I'm like there's this asteroid named after your mother and then a lot of times they think it's a scam they're like do you want money and I was like no no I'm just (laughs) want you to know about it and please like google me this is legitimate I realize this is a weird phone call to get anyways it's like always very awkward but usually like if I can keep them on the phone if they don't just hang up on me I can like get to a point where they're like they're like oh okay but it's like a very weird phone call to get so I didn't I didn't know if we had that in common with with crater naming as well it does sound like a scam (laughs) like are you trying to sell me this crater it sounds like it sounds like a total weird scam like but I feel like, you know, if you're if your mother has an asteroid named after you, then maybe you want to know about it. So I try. So if you want some awkward times in your day, <laughs> feel free to yeah, tell people about well, these craters. Yeah, that's actually a really nice idea because it is like you're honoring them and their their work and their legacy by naming this crater. So I do hope that they they know about them. Thank you so much for being on the show and for telling us about all these interesting things. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's so fun to talk with you, Gary. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.